Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Moth. And welcome back to Master of Modern. I'm your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's up, everybody? We're back. We're here. Uh, this is exciting. It's round two, um, and uh, we're, we're talking modern. So, yeah. so, so uh, is- today we're talking about the Mythic Championship, and we're also going to be talking about uh, your time at GP Portland this last weekend, because you played an actual GP. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the decks. I-, I gave my brother a deck. I took him with me. I, I took a version of Kessel Runs. We'll be recapping all that. All the new stuff. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter. I am at Kess Wiley. I'm at Ben Bateman Media. We are at The Unknown Cast. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We do a live stream. We're doing it right now. In fact, if you watch the live stream, you would have heard us do this whole intro one time. And now you get to hear it again for live stream people. And then if you're not on YouTube right now, check it out. Uh, you get to interact with us in person. For instance, uh, someone just told us that we should saran wrap all of our cards so that they have card sleeves to protect them, which I thought was funny. There would be a severe amount of glare. <laughs> so much um, but yeah so definitely subscribe to YouTube uh, comment there share it once the video goes live as a regular video versus the audio live feed and yeah that, that, that's fun I think it's a good uh, a good intro uh, be sure to subscribe on YouTube Co- comment uh, like subscribe all those things it is literally right now with what we're doing with the show the most important thing you can possibly do to help us um, we have a Patreon that's a great way to help us. But in terms of awareness and getting this brand out there so more people hear about it, um, YouTube is the, is the thing we're really pushing right now. So uh, like, subscribe, comment. And yeah, thanks for, for tuning in. So Here's Alex. Kay and Z, who's recommended that we sleeve our cards. And then Benjamin Wayland was like, you need a whole wrap of Saran Wrap. Mm. I mean, we could try it. I'm not opposed. <laughs> <laughs> I would do it as a bonus thing at the end of an episode next week or something along those lines. The actual video of us saran wrapping yeah, yeah, the card? Yeah. And then we just post it. <laughs> That's weird. Are these deck master <laughs> game cards? Do they have anything on yeah. them? Yeah. No. All right. Uh, all right. So uh, tell me about – tell me on the road to GP Portland. Well, I knew that uh, any modern Grand Prix that is somewhat local, I try to make an effort to get to. Um, I'm from Seattle originally. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, so – this one felt like a good one, and my older brother, who is about 10 years older than me, taught me how to play Magic when I was five years old. Um, that was when I learned how to play, and so I've been playing ever since, and he doesn't really play Magic anymore. Like, he doesn't really have people to play with, but he likes it, and he enjoys it when we play. But, I mean, he's at best, like, a draft player, you know, like, plays, sorcerer, plays, plays like, instance main phase kind of guy. Like, just not a... Not like somebody who plays Magic. He, like, I, played I, Magic. I would say, but you're... He's, like, a draft player, I feel like. I'm saying, like, draft years are... Five years ago, he drafted for, okay. like, the last time. Like, I, he's got it. Like, my brother just is not somebody who plays a lot of Magic. He plays a ton of Hearthstone. He's, like, forgotten the rules of Magic in some ways. But I was like, Modern's really fun. It's not that complicated. You'll be fine. Um, <laughs> you should just play a deck. And he's like, cool, whatever. So I put Mono Red Phoenix together because I thought it was a cool deck list. And it okay. seemed like a reasonable deck to give someone. Um, How did he do? He did better than I did. Oh, nice. Yeah, he started out 2-0. Welcome sweet. to playing good lists. I know, I know. Into a GP instead he, of like... <laughs> he was literally like, why didn't you display this deck? And I was like, shut up. <laughs> He's like, why didn't you display a good list of magic so, cards? So I have a question, because we have... And we'll, we'll get into the list you played in a second, but it, in all of the GPs you've gone to, often, yeah. and, and even going towards the old PTQ era yeah, yeah, of yeah. playing, like, 
you have this inherent problem with playing established deck in archetypes, probably because you feel like when you play an established deck archetype, if you just lose throughout the tournament, or because you feel like you don't have an edge with this deck because you're just not going to be as good as other players with it, you don't want to spend the day losing because while playing a good deck, you'd rather lose with a bad deck than lose with a good deck. Is kind of your philosophy K- behind kind it. Kind of, yeah. That's I mean, that's, that, that's fairly accurate. It's when was not- the last time you took a like stock list to a major GP or large tournament? I mean, I can count on one hand probably the number of times I've done it. Okay. It, like a stock list. Like uh, there was a SCG LA where I took mono black devotion and standard at one point. Okay. And I scrubbed out really hard and it was just miserable. It wasn't fun to okay. play. The format was boring, I thought. And it just was like, this is stupid. Why did I do this? Um, I'm ready that once. I took a rug Delver list back to a PTQ in the first couple years of modern, like probably back in like 2012 or 13. Okay. And I did really well with it. I think like it was an eight round PTQ and I think it was like, I went like five to one maybe. Okay. Almost. Uh, I like finished like 21st or something like that. Okay. Um, and I remember that was really cool. I liked that deck. And it's also like sort of my style still. So it was, it was doable. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a, uh, a mono blue merfolk list and I remember adding some green to it before they printed the good green cards. But like I played Collected Company, I think, in it. That was close to a stock list, like, you know, maybe with five or six different cards. Okay, okay. But it's, like, not very many times. Normally, it's, like, I've, you know, taken Superior Burning Cocoa, or I take that weird retrace list, or I take, like, that Greater Gargadon, Steal Your Stuff list that they change the rules, or Hunted Handsome, or... I mean, I've, I've tried all these things. And so, so, based on our... Your last experience with GPs, I have a challenge for you on the next GP you go to. Okay. And that's to take a stock list. Just to try out a good deck. A, a, a good deck that, like, did well on the last weekend. Just just go for it. Yeah. Nah. Maybe. I mean, I would have ended up with one of the Phoenix lists. I would have ended up either with a blue-red list that was the only deck anyone played that weekend or the mono-red list. Sure. Probably. And that mono, you know, the Phoenix deck got two into the top eight. And one was ninth place. Uh, Manamorphos, Faith is Looting, Arc Light Phoenix, Thing in the Ice, Thought Scour, and Oct, and Seer Visions, and Lightning Bolt made up, were all in the top 10 cards. The yeah. only non Phoenix cards were. A, nope, all of them. Every one of these cards. Is Surgical Attraction played in Phoenix decks? Yeah, every single yeah. card in the top 10 is a Phoenix card. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it was powerful. I played against the Red Phoenix. I, I'll take your challenge. That's fine. Okay. I have to look with the next GP, the next GPLA modern. GPLA March, I think. GPLA March is the next modern one? The next modern one that's close, I think. Okay. Yeah, and that's a reasonable. That's like, I realized this morning <laughs> that uh, I counted uh, of the next 70 days, mm-hmm. I think I'm out of LA for 38 of them. So, there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be with me for a solid three weeks of that? Yeah. Um, Going to Hong Kong. Yeah. So anyone in Hong Kong who wants to hang out, we're going to be there for two weeks. And New York, like a few weeks later for a week. Yeah. New York's harder. Oh, you're just well, not, not hanging out. I'm saying that's where you and I are going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just re- I was thinking the, sh- the actual number of available opportunities for me to play Magic, it's like, it's been like very, very low, I think. So March is probably actually when my schedule will even kind of free up. Do you know the date on March, Michael? I mean, I, I kind of, the reason I bring this up is the amount of GPs that I've gone to that I do well in that are limited versus modern, I, like, do better in the limited ones. And I think that's probably because I just play the best pos- 
bowl deck given to me in limited versus that well, yeah, me too. All my all of my best I like am like, oh, I really want to try out this cool strategy and, and like the best testing environment is a GP, so I want to see what it does. Um, Colton has an interesting question here. You see, yeah. it just it ran out of the chat, but you can probably pick it up there. <laughs> Read it into the mic. Brandon Russell. Brandon S. Russell? Yeah. Is it step one, post Bateman Brew to tappedout.net? Step two, use that stock list. Is that what you want me to read? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, Brandon, uh, long, long time fan of you. I appreciate the, the, the candor there. Do I think there are cards that are still ran in good, that are like, that are no longer good, but ran in lists because they just have momentum and that they shouldn't be ran there? Is that the one you're asking? Yes. I think that's an interesting question. Like, basically, based on the past history of a card's success, are there cards that we think lists still run that they shouldn't be running anymore because, like, the format doesn't support it, but, like, they've been good for so long? That, I mean, a card like this would be, like, let's just say Kitchen Finks was no longer really good in Modern, but people just kept running it in all of those colored decks because it's been so good for so long? I, I don't... The problem with Kitchen Finks is that it's, like, an inherent piece of multiple combos and, like, does something in a specific way there, and it, it, those combos might be bad, and they, I think they are, like, close collecting company decks haven't done well in modern yeah. for almost a year um i think like there are times when lightning bolt is bad and people play it just because they don't know it's bad like and bad's a relative term because yeah. three damage to any target for one red is really good like that's just a good thing well, but that's kind of like sometimes it's not and that's kind of the point is like the format moves yeah. away from it what's the date i didn't realize there was so much modern on the west coast uh what we got? oakland is modern on the january 4th but you're in hong kong right yeah i would be there for so that so then uh, march 1st is oh like, it's right around the corner we'll have gotten back <laughs> yeah, we'll be here. Life never stops. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> we'll be like so jet lagged. Be probably. a year anniversary for my bachelor party. Yeah, all it's right. Like the one two weekend two week window that we know will actually be here. March first, I will play some kind of good stock list. That's mm-hmm. what I'll do. It's a promise. You have my word on the show. And we'll do you like right off the back of New York Toy Fair. We can do some testing in New York Toy Fair. Be great. Yeah, exciting. Um, Want to help Ben test modern in New York City? Yeah. Uh, during New York Toy Fair, just hang out with him. In, in, with him in the hotel room, he's going to be exhausted from toy things. Probably the hotel lobby. I don't know if we're going to be hanging out in our hotel rooms, but it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> fair. Um, um, but uh, but all right. So getting back to it, you know, I took my brother with me. I gave him on a red phoenix. He was excited. Um, he was a really good sport about it too. Like honestly, you should have seen. Like he, I wasn't like watching, but you should have seen him. This is like the microcosm of somebody who knows how to play Magic. But you give a modern deck, and you expect him to play in a modern Grand Prix for the first time. Mm-hmm. He was like. Ah, I played against this one deck, and he was playing all these lands that came in tapped, and like this card that untapped him, and like he was going so fast, like I wouldn't even like really look him in the face. He was like shuffling his cards really fast. I was like, he was like, I was like, whoa, bro, I'm sure what you're saying is right, but I got to read each of these lands. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like in that situation, having your brother just like call a judge over and being like, I don't totally understand what his deck is trying to do. I'm a little bit new to the format. Can you keep an eye on yeah, him right. and make sure? Because the judge will do that. I mean, they don't like... It's, it's more intimidating to call a judge as a new player though, for sure. It is. Yeah, I, used, yeah, yeah. I used to be super timid about Oh, because you think you're like a snitch. Like yeah. that, like it, it feels much more like snitches get stitches and you're just like, no, I don't want to do this. It's like, I don't want to be an asshole. But like in reality, like... Yeah, call your call judges. It was funny. It was it was funny to hear him uh, to hear him like giving his each each match. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking. I wish you recorded that and we had that available as like an entire yeah video segment pr- of just like you and your brother and your brother talking about his matchups and yeah. what they are, and then you like let don't tell him that this is like a known quantity. Yeah, yeah. He's he, like, oh, this one. Did, yeah, all the decks he played were. Actually, I think he, he played against one weird brew that I didn't quite understand what the hell he was saying, but okay. but everything else, he was, they were all real. So, But anyway, it was, it was fun to go with him, and, and like, you know, 
it was interesting, right? Like this is actually probably cool for you guys to hear because some of you are maybe newer listeners. I was trying to figure out in my mind explaining to someone who it was their first constructed GP ever. So not just modern, but how do you explain to somebody, this is what you're going to experience. These are the things to be aware of, right? And then the secondly, like, because it's modern, these are the things in modern that people do. These are going to happen to you. You need to be prepared for this. And like, that was a, you know, I was like, okay, for instance, your deck is extraordinarily reliant on your graveyard. There's this card called Rest in Peace. Any deck that has white is going to be playing this card against you. It's going to happen in game two almost every single time because the whole format is all about graveyards right now. And that Bedlam Reveler card is very bad if you don't have a graveyard. And I was like, and this other card, Arclight Phoenix, is useless if you don't have a graveyard. So That's they're going to... not true. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Casting a 3-2 Haze Flyer yeah, is good. Totally. And we had that conversation too. But so it was interesting. Like <laughs> <it's> those fine. <laughs> those conversations. And then also saying stuff to him like... Well, yeah, trying to give him like... Uh, useful like rules of thumb because like rest in peace not every deck is going to be playing rest in peace because most decks play with the graveyard themselves but they're going to have graveyard hate yeah. and like trying to inf- like convince them like there's just cards that are going to wreck your graveyard and being aware of them in game two what is hard to just get that across right i like when we were testing like i had leyline of sanctity in my sideboard and i like started a game with it and i was like this is going to be hard for you and he's like what and i was like this is going to happen it's this is the thing when your burn spells you can't target me anymore so this is and it's again people are going to have this it's going to be mm-hmm. annoying to you you're going to feel like you would have won the game if they didn't have this card but that's what modern is so the other the other lesson i tried to give him was like you're new to this to the constructed magic period and a really complicated format, you're going to make mistakes and you're, they're going to cost you games and it's going to be really frustrating. Mm-hmm. It happens to me too, but it's going to happen to you because you're going to miss an interaction or a trigger. Don't tilt. Whatever you do, don't tilt and get frustrated because it's just impossible to go into this and expect. And he went in and he played really well. Like I said, he started 2-0. I think, I think in the end, you know, he maybe went like 3-3 three, like three, three when we dropped. But like I think at one point he was three one, which I was like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty that's pretty hard to do if you're yeah, yeah. like have never played a con- game of constructed magic at a GP before. So that was fun. Um, on my end, I was playing the Kessel Run. So we probably will post the list that I played, mm-hmm. um, but I can kind of give a gist of it here if you guys don't know the deck we're talking about. This is a, a deck that Alex had kind of conceptualized about six months or eight months ago. Well, uh, the, the deck just started out as a straight-up blue-white-red list that, like, played good Planeswalkers, played good control spells, and then, like, at s- this was earlier in the Teferi era when I we really kind of created this deck, and I wanted convenient, quick ways to close out games, and I was getting frustrated with, like, how long it was taking, and I would lose to just, like, people being faster than me and having some way to just be like, oh, I win, oops, and... I was bouncing between doing actually a Through the Breach Emerical deck, and I don't have Through the Breaches. Now I have one. <laughs> and, um, or doing a Kiki Congo Angel combo. And I love Restoration Angel. Restoration Angel is probably one of the best, my favorite cards of all time. Yeah. And so leaning into the Kiki Jiki Resto combo was something that we, I was trying out. And then leading into GP Vegas. Vegas. Yep. Uh, we, I, I had this and a few other decks, but, like, you wanted to try out this combo, but adding um, uh, Felder Guardian and Sahili into the deck. Because you were messing around Sahili decks for a while at that point. Yeah, we, like, I, I think I took your 75, and I probably changed out about 15 cards. Right. Give or take, maybe 20, including the sideboard. Um, and we, yeah, we, we messed around with the numbers and, and added a few things, and it did pretty well at Vegas. Some of you guys probably remember I played this deck on coverage uh, in round two or three. Just round two. two. Um, before people got buys. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. It did pretty well. Like, I think I started that tournament out maybe maybe like 
301 or something like that before I started losing. I can't quite remember, but it was a strong enough performance, and um, I liked the deck. And we changed it around for this GP. The meta was a little bit worse. This time through, what I found was that it really felt bad playing so, so many sorcery speed four and five drops. Like Kiki Jiki, Teferi, Jace. You're just, it just felt really clunky. Mm-hmm. Felder Guardian, you know, the one of was in there. Even Sahili felt really underpowered. Like the decks that I was playing against were just doing so much in the first couple turns. I think Sahili has always felt a little underpowered. Like the one times that she's been good yeah. is when she's like, I win by having this in play. And we were playing a one of anyway, so... But just all the Planeswalkers just didn't feel like they were affecting the board enough. When it, cause, partly because the way the deck is built is, like... Because you're going for the combo plan, and that's really what you're trying to do, having... Planeswalkers are better when you're playing a control plan. So you're what you're doing is, before you play the Planeswalkers, is stopping them from doing anything. So yeah. when you play it, it becomes this value engine that keeps you being able to stop them what they're doing. And when, what you're trying to do is be proactive, and the Planeswalkers you're playing aren't great for proactiveness. You want... It's like also, a proactive Planeswalker is Elspeth, and even she's probably not that good right now. It's also now. really hard to stop them from doing what they're doing in Modern when... Like, okay, we're, we're a three-color mana base that was playing eight fetch lands and five shocks mm-hmm. with five basics, four colonnades, uh, and then a couple colorless lands. Like, I think we were playing... We had been playing one field, two field of ruin, and I replaced one of them with the Seraph Sanctuary for the infinite life combo. Mm-hmm. But, like... Well, but, like, in the first... In, in the top eight of the tournament... Wait, continue, sorry. In the first few turns of the game, you were almost every single game going to 14. Like... Almost every single game. Because of the mana base. Because of the mana base. So trying to stop people from what they're doing, making sure you're both hitting your land drops and also keeping a hand that's doing anything and also not just dying to aggressive creatures, starting the game at basically 14 life, it was rough. I mean, that was the, I think the mana base and the pain, the pain of the mana base was one of the hardest parts of the whole deck. But I mean, yes, but I mean, three-color decks can make it work. I mean, the problem with it is that you're playing double blue and double red, which has its own challenges, but, right. and that's kind of the point. But I think control decks, like a blue-black control deck, top eight of this tournament, like straight blue-black, with like... Yeah, but that's blue-black. I mean, what you just said is like, I have to play untapped lands and make sure I'm hitting red and blue early. So. No, but like, Grixis, I mean, there's been decks in the history of modern that have survived playing three-color mana bases pretty easily. But they don't need to hit triple red. Right, that's That's the the issue. And and you have no other reason to be in triple red is the problem. So, So like, yeah, okay. So the Kiki-Jiki combo uh, with Restoration Angel is the A combo. In the end, I elected to play three Restoration Angel and two Kiki-Jiki, along with uh, three Jace and two Teferi. And then I played a single Felidar Guardian, a single Sahili Ray, and one Seraph Sanctuary. Seraph Sanctuary was the coolest tech, and I, I actually have more faith in this side of the combo than the other one now. Right, like, I, I guess what my point this whole time has been is I think that there's a version of that combo of yeah. just, like, Kiki-Jiki, Sarah, uh, Restoration Angel, Restoration Angel, and Felder Guardian, and yeah. the Seraph Sanctum, that works, just not in a blue-white-red control shell. So, yeah, my, my, go- my goal would be in the future, I think, to maybe shift away from blue. Like, so the combo we're talking about, guys, is the Seraph Sanctuary is a land from Avacyn Restored. It's colorless, comes into play untapped. When it enters the battlefield, you gain life. And whenever an angel enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. So if you are able to, obviously, go infinite with Kiki-Jiki and Restoration Angel, you attack for a million damage. But Or Felder Guardian. Both you, of them work with Kiki-Jiki to go infinite. Yeah. But what the land lets you do... Is that if you have a single Felidar Guardian and you have Restoration Angel and the land in play... You can end of their turn flash in Resto targeting Felidar Guardian, and at the end of their turn, 
they blink each other infinitely. One's an angel, you gain infinite life. Right, because because the restoration angel can't do it with himself. Like two restoration angels can't do this because they can't target angels because Pelagarner is not an angel. They can go back and forth and you gain infinite life because one's an angel, one isn't, and you go. Yeah, and there's almost no card ever printed. In fact, I think Felidar Guardian, at, at its cost maybe, is the only one that's ever been printed that blinks a permanent instantly. Like that does not, not an end of turn blink, but a same turn enters the battlefield blink. I don't think there's a single other card you can play that costs four or less. Yeah. Four or less, that's a creature, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it's so unique. Um, but there's, I think there's something there. Like, I could see this being more of a white-red prison deck almost. Uh, yeah, the list I've been messing around with, and, and, you know, obviously this deck kind of exists, is the um, Eldritch Evolution, all your creatures enter the battlefield, they're relatively aggressive, you play with Kitchen Finks, and you play with Blade Splicers, and you play with um, good one-drops and two-drops, you play yeah. with Birds of, Birds of Paradise, and... And the, the deck, the purpose of the deck is more just to kind of go off right. with value creatures and then Restoration Angel and Pelodar Guardian are more about blinking those value creatures to gain the value again. You play with um, that card right there. The, the name is being blocked. Knight of Autumn. Knight of Autumn. Yeah. Uh, you play with like Knight of Autumns and you get like all these good value creatures that, that like then... Because the other problem I think that our version of the deck had with Blue White Red Control is that because so many of the cards you're playing are control decks and planeswalkers, blinking them with Restoration Angel, you don't have that many good targets. You just really have Snapcaster Mage and Wall of Omens. Yeah. And when those are your two targets, they're not that it it you don't have that many good things to be blinking. And yeah. like you want to kind of maximize the amount of stuff you get value off of with those cards if you're really gonna go for that plan. And Kiki Jiki kind of does it too. Like, playing Kiki Jiki and just copying Blade Splicers six turns in a row is going to win you the game. Yeah. Uh, like, you don't have to go infinite with it. It can just be another Restoration Angel. Kiki Jiki is, is really tough. It's it's like, it's just, I know it has haste and it wins the game, but it just feels, when you draw in your opening hand, it just feels so bad. Which it's, is, I think, why, like, people are cutting, you, like, cut down to two or one Kiki Jiki, but you're playing four, some amount of Eldritch Revolutions and some yeah. amount of... Uh, Angels. Angels. Cord, oh, cord, of cord of calling, so yeah, that you yeah. can just tutor for it when you need to. Well, because there's like the four colors of Healy deck, which is kind of doing that. It's it's a similar kind of deck. I just think Healy is bad. Yeah, I mean, it's but it's I, I might even play. Like I think Eldritch Revolution into this is better than Healy. I would think be. it might actually just be playing a single Kiki and have the. I think it has all the combos in there. Okay. I'm pretty sure because it's a it's a tutor's deck. It's playing four Eldritch Revolution, right? And and Voice of Resurgence and all that stuff. And I, I guess. What I, I think what our plan is is instead of Sihili Ray and, and Feldar Guardian, you have Restoration Angel and Seraph, whatever. Yeah, uh, I think that's, I think it's honestly. And, and it's f- more free and less, like, playing that Angel Land, like, has minimal cost. And it's an untapped land, so sh- which is, like, the shockingly best part about it is that you don't, as long as your mana base can support having that colorless land in your deck, you're pretty well positioned. Right. I, I, like, beat a Boggles player with it, and it was, like, kind of fascinating. So I'll actually, I'll quickly talk about the matchups, mm-hmm. um, and then we'll probably move on to the Pro Tour stuff. Yeah. Um, but I played against, I can't remember the exact order, but I definitely played against Boggles. I beat Boggles. I played against Humans, and I beat Humans. Both were tight, three-game matches. Um, both were one with the combo. One of the two combos. Um, I was able to beat... How many times did you combo with both Angels and the land? Twice. Twice. Okay. Twice in the tournament. I think I, I'm pretty sure I dropped after round six. I played six six rounds, and I think in the end, my record was like three, two, one, maybe. Okay. I think. Um, I timed out against a guy in like round two or three uh, who was playing a, like a control deck. I think he was playing like actual control. No, no, he was playing Tron. That's what it was. He was playing Tron, and I would have beaten him on the next turn. Uh, he did ultimate Ugin against me, which I've never had that happen before. But it's crazy. 
Has somebody ever ultimate an Ugin against you? No, I don't even. It's just it's the opposite end of uh, Nickel Bullets, right? It's yeah, it's it's draw seven, gain seven, and play a thing for free. No, but seven permanents from your hand in oh. play. <laughs> it's so ludicrous, like in a deck with that many giant things. Interesting. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, he was like doing it. He was like resolving his Ugin, and I was looking at my hand. I was like, okay, if I can survive next turn, I can probably combo him. I was like, his, he has to play, and he just was like. Wormcoil Engine, Karn, Emrakul, or like whatever, like, you know, Ulamog. I was like, okay, there's no, no way. Like, all my permanents are gone. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, that was wild. Uh, that was one matchup. I did play against the Blue-Red Drake deck, um, or the, the Phoenix deck, and Crackling Drake is really good. That was, the, that was the card that scared me the most. Phoenixes were fine, like... Path to Exile on a Phoenix, I'm okay with. You go Path of Restoration usually. Both of them kind of just like yeah. stop the Phoenix in its tracks. Yeah, and and the other like thing in the ice is again you can just get rid of you can path it. You bring mm-hmm. it's like snap and path means that like they're they're pretty threat light, but the Drake you have to have path for because your bolt doesn't get it and it's so big. And there's no setup for them. They just kind of play it, draw a card, and then and pathing a Drake is like we were talking about this before that we started recording. I don't know if I would ever be that sad if I had to play a spell that said four mana, put a land into play for my deck, draw a card. Like, I wouldn't play that on purpose, but the fact that that's where you end up with that card when someone paths it is, like, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, kind of, like, a, the, the worst Solemn Simulacrum ever. It's Solemn Simulacrum that they, like, kill. Yeah. Like, they bolt your Solemn Simulacrum, which always... Well, you're also... Card. I mean, if it's, if it's get a land into play and draw a card and they discard a card... Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, kind of you're good, right. Actually. Yeah, that's a discard too. Like all three of those things, that's a card that would probably see some weird amount of control play. Not like a lot, but like I can yeah. imagine it happening. Draw a discard ramp? I don't know. That probably actually sees play. Now, I don't think it sees play if it costs blue, blue, red, red, because that's like pretty restrictive. Sure. But um, but yeah, I like would that card be black, green? Yeah. It'd be like a black, green, and two. You'd probably you would probably lose a life also, is my guess. You would draw a card, lose a life, they would discard a card. Put a land in the play? Maybe they would discard a card and gain a life because it'd be black and green or something. I don't think you, I don't think the life loss needs needs to be. I'm just there. thinking the symmetric the symmetrical nature of it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, something like that. I don't know. But anyway, um, like they gain a life. Yeah. Okay. Reverse drain. Yeah. Or maybe it's that you no you would never be able to gain a life. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, um, I can't remember all of the matchups. There was probably I played against one player. It was it was like green white. No, he was playing like rock creatures. It was basically. It was basically rock creatures with hardened scales and winding constrictor. So it was just like a good stuff three color deck with with hardened scales and winding constrictor. It was playing Night of Autumn and like scavenging ooze, and it was just, yeah, it was like good, pretty powerful. Um, that was like late in the day, though. So we were both out of contention at that point. It was kind of a weird deck, okay. Um, but you know, powerful creatures. So um, that was pretty much my matchups for the day. I I enjoyed playing Kessel Run. It was. It just felt clunky this time. The mana base and the way that it matched up with the costs, it just felt really slow. Yeah, I think we found a thing that's good, and that thing that's good is not a Planeswalker control deck. Not that a Planeswalker control deck can't be good, but I think the thing that you found that's good doesn't want to be in that shell. Yeah, I would almost say, like, I would almost have been happy with no Jaces, just the Teferis, sure. maybe. Because, like, playing Teferi is sweet because of the untap ability, and it allows you to still hold open your path through your Lightning Bolt or your Counterspell. Right. 
that's so important in that deck to be able to at least be kind of reactive while still advancing your game plan. But would it be better just to be aggressive ahead of that and like just have like creatures that stop your opponent from doing stuff? Maybe, yeah. It might just be better to not play any of the Planeswalkers. Yeah. So we'll keep working on it, but I won't be playing it in March because I'm playing an established net deck. Unless, unless <laughs> this deck does well. So now it's your job, yeah. people listening and watching, to top 8 in GP before, or top 8 in SCG event before March. Brandon, I will send you a list. Um, <laughs> With a list so that Ben can play it. Because <laughs> um, so, like, like, I, technically I could just play this list. You could. And you have to play a good list. And then I just can like, and then I'll top eight the team on tournament and you'll be mad forever. <laughs> sad. Um, I suggest before we get into our discussion of the Pro Tour, should we knock out this other box topper? Sure. You can open it on camera. Now, this is just... I bought these. These are for me. But we thought it'd be more exciting if I opened these on camera the with you guys. The first one we did in the pre-show stream, um, we opened it, and it was this beautiful Through the Breach right here. Though we had not hit record on our audio, so we started the episode over. So that is only available to those of you that were watching that part of the stream. All right. So, once again, it is a Deckmaster game. Ben gets to see it first. Uh, that's pretty sweet. You're going to be excited about this. All right. Double excited. Switching around. Yeah. Everyone. Ooh. We were just talking about this. Yeah. Kitchen Finks. Finks. Finks a good one. There we go. Well, we, were just ta- we were talking about how people are kind of down on Finks as one of the cards that you can get out of the box topper. But the fact that, like, it's kind of like Ornithopter out of the old experiment, or not experiments, the or the masterpieces. The masterpieces, where because Ornithopter is a four of in established decks in modern, it ends up being a really important masterpiece versus like a card that just like was more expensive before then, or like that's been printed on the ground. What's your feeling as somebody who. What is your feeling on like premium versions of Magic cards? Because at this point, we have so many different premium versions in all different varieties. You love them? Uh, yeah, and to the extent that like I'm happier. Like I think the buy a box promos that they do for sets should just be modern stuff like this. They should just be masterpieces of cool old cards. Because like I think the they're towing a line where cards printed from those box opener sets. Like, if they're constructed playable, people will have a problem with it, or they're bad, and then people don't want them. And so, like, where do they... Who are they making happy with that card? Versus if this version of Kitchen Finks came with the Guilds of Ravnica set, or, like, an old Ravnica card version of this kind of frame came with Guilds of Ravnica when you buy a box, everyone's happy about it. Like, no one's... It's not in standard, so no one's unhappy. It's worth money, so people are happy they're getting it with their box. It costs Wizards pretty minimal amounts. It gets reprints into the market. I think, like, cool promos like this don't hurt anyone. And we, I mean, like, we, we talked about this a little in Ultimate Masters was spoiled, and maybe I didn't really talk about it as much because you guys did the Ultimate Masters episode without me. Um, but in general, I don't think having expensive sets like Ultimate Masters are a net negative. I agree. I, I actually, I, like, I think that we got a little inundated with master sets mm-hmm. this last year and I think that uh, it reduced a little bit of the excitement mm-hmm. and there's a premium value when you look at a master set card that I think you want to feel like do you still when I look at like a when I look at like a modern masters one card mm-hmm. I like, see the symbol and it feels like somewhat like oh this is like old and cool and like mm-hmm. a little bit valuable when I look at an iconic masters card I'm like oh what is this wah, yeah wah. And, and and I think part of that is there's so much good like Playing Modern Masters 1, like, and we were paying $14 back then because that was before they raised the $10 SRP and then so stores were just charging $14 because we didn't know how limited the print run was going to be and it was really limited. Um, and in that environment, it was fine. And like, no one needs to play this set. It's fine that there's a premium expensive set that's out there because 
by not being able to play Ultimate Masters, you're not missing out on tournament magic. You're yeah. not missing out on a GP. You're not unable to play modern or unable to play standard. It, there's not like a barrier to play those things. Right. But this allows them to print a much more exciting product that has a lot more reprints, which does affect the market more positively than Ultimate Masters, which is just like boring and no one wanted. Not I, Ultimate Masters, sorry. Iconic I Masters. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited about this set. I like the Masters sets in general. Um, and not only that, but I really like premium versions of cards. Like I'm looking at these and I'm just like, God, these are gorgeous. I would love to have Mm -hmm. four of all of these, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I feel the same way still about the expeditions when I see them. I feel the same way still about like when I see the masterpieces, the invocations, even honestly, as weird as they are, I like, I like having decks that are like unique and blinged out. Like I think it's really exciting. Like in my Highlander decks, oh, yeah. invocations was the only way I was able to afford a foil the Force of Will. So I'm all about them. <laughs> yeah, and like my Highlander decks are like peppered through with just like little, you know, I have three Beta Islands in one of them, and I've got like a couple expeditions that I bought at one point. It's fun to have that variety in your decks, um, especially in formats like EDH and you know, or, or like Commander and like Highlander where it's one ups. You know, Singleton makes it especially appealing mm-hmm. to have. People are excited about the red, white, and either green or not green Sahili Ray. Or not Sahili Ray, sorry. The Felda Guardian Angel Land. Yeah, I think it's sweet. Somebody said, I saw in the chat, somebody suggested Nahiri, and I think that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah people were suggesting that when I posted the list online. I think what's cool about the, the deck, going back to that, sorry, is all the pieces work together well. It's as if you had a Kiki Jiki. Like, it's it's a Splinter Twin combo deck, but it's a little bit more expensive. Yeah. But both... Uh, Deceiver, Exarch, and... What's the fairy? Deceiver, Exarch, and... It's been so long. Pestermite? Pestermite. Both combo with each other. Yeah, I think um, the one thing about Felidar Guardian that I thought was really cool, and I was trying to figure out a way to do this, but in white-red, there's not really a good way to do it. Um, blinking a Planeswalker feels really good. That's mm-hmm. one of the coolest things that Felidar Guardian's capable of doing. Um, the like you can minus her, then blink her the next turn. Yeah, plus her. that's really powerful. Um, and... So I think that's that's notable. I mean, it's a little tough that it's a four drop and all the good planeswalkers are four and five drops in that mm-hmm. color. Like I'm not forgetting a, a, a really good white or red or white red three map planeswalker, right? No, but like, the two good white red planeswalkers are. I think they're the only, yeah the two good ones are Johnny and and Nahiri. Because like you have three mana Chandra creature that's the red three drop, and you have like. Well, there's a bunch of red three, or there's a few red three drop ones because there's there's Sarkon, the new dragon one, who's not. Yeah, there's the Sarkon, right? That doesn't do anything for, for this. You. Yeah. yeah, and there's not uh, the white. There's the white Ajani, the double strike Ajani. Mm-hmm. That doesn't that's do good. anything for mm-hmm. you. So yeah, it's. I mean, that's why, like, I don't. I don't know if Planeswalkers are where you want to be. Yes, it's good to blink it with Felder, and, and Nahiri's a great one. I think you play Nahiri, and I think you have the Johnny's in the side because yeah. he's like a great sideboard card. Um, and you just go with like aggressive threats. You cut wall of omens because it's like not the best. Yeah. You can have wall of omens. Yeah, it's you could play. You could play flicker wisp in this deck too. Uh, yeah, my list had it. It's it's not it's as a little good slow. As you. It's a little slow. Yeah. So I'm right. not playing with amulet necessarily because getting not amulet. Uh, Aethervile. Aethervile. Yeah. So that is going to wrap up our discussion of Grand Prix Portland. Um, the event was won by Grixis Shadow, which is cool. I think Shadow is reasonably well positioned right now. It's a good deck. It's nice to see. a that it was like the deck and then it kind of fell out of favor and now it's back. It continues to kind of win tournaments and you keep showing mm-hmm. up and um, it's really powerful. It's a great deck and I actually think at this point it's a good deck to have in the format. It's kind of a tempo deck in some ways. Okay. Right? Like it, it's it's kind of the best version of like a Delver deck you could ever ask for. Sure. Um, because it's not... You're not playing a one-drop threat in that deck but you're very disruptive 
Stubborn what? denial alongside your dredge creatures and your and your death shadow. It's like a really good way to stay ahead, mm-hmm. and it shuts down the really linear combo decks because of all the disruption it's playing, and it makes you respect the fact that there are going to be decks interacting with you. And I like that. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Um, anyway, yes. yeah. I suggest we get into the discussion of the Mythic Championships. All right. So, let's break it down. Goodbye, Pro Tours. Yeah. Hello, we, we Mythic Championships. We don't get to call them Pro Tours anymore. They're called Mythic Championships. It's now only Magic Fests and, uh, and Pro Tour... Cha- or, yeah, Magic Fests and Mythic Championships, right? That's what we have now? Yes. Now, the fun thing about Magic Fest is that... What happened to my window? So cool. The fun thing about Magic Fest is that, like, have you been paying attention to the fact that there are, like, local magic, like, the card trick type of magic, like, uh, events around the country called Magic Fests? No. <laughs> just just another feather in the cap of all the idiots who ask us if we can do a magic trick when we tell them we play magic. Oh, I came for the Magic Fest. Oh, oh no. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So these are the changes with Mythic Championships. In 2019, there will be 10 million in prizes across tabletop and digital magic, uh, including Arena. Uh, introduction, introduction, introduction of Magic Pro League, uh, 32 top-ranked players with contracts worth of $75,000 total Yep. Um, among those 32. The Premier Magic... What? Each. Oh, each person can get up to $75,000. That's the contract for $75,000. Yeah. Uh... Interesting. Okay, so we're going to have 32 actually paid Magic Pros via Got it. So they each get a $75,000 a year. Yeah, they get a salary Got contract it. to play Magic professionally. Got it. Uh, the premier Magic tournaments are going to be Mythic Championships, and they can be a digital or paper events. So uh, instead of Pro Tour, they will be both of these. Uh, the first digital Mythic Champion will be at PAX East in Boston, Mark 28 and 31st. Uh, the thing to bring up of that is they had six Pro Tours but next year. They're going down to four, but it looks like there'll be multiple Magic Arena Mythic Championships instead. It is a little um, curious. Oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Pro Tours are being rebranded as Mythic Championships. Each paper MC will award a 500000 prize pool, so there'll be four of those next year. Uh, there are going to be four Mythic Championships in 2019, not six Pro Tours as previously announced. The Pro Tours in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Sydney were canceled. Uh, everyone who attends a Mythic Championship will receive some amount of prize money. However, Mythic Championships events after London, the second paper MC of 2019, will not offer travel awards. So you no longer get travel awards to go to them. The narrowly regionalized invitational scheme that was previously announced for Mythic Championships will not be in effect. Um, There will be no Nationals for 2019. There will be no Worlds Cup for 2019. The 2018 and 2019 Pro Tour Team Series will be the last team series. Mm. Pro Players Club benefits will continue through the end of 2019, but Grand Prix Seattle will be the least, the last event to award Pro Points. When is Grand Prix Seattle? I don't know. The well, Pro Tour check. Hall of Fame will be changing in 2019, though we don't know how. Hey, Mike, can you check out when Grand Prix Seattle is? Thank you. Um... <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> so it's an enormous announcement. So the first thing that I think is a little curious, and I, this is something that I have always found a little bit strange, mm-hmm. it's weird that they announced the six Pro Tours thing and then two months later they're announcing this. It's, it feels like it feels like they were less sure of their decision or the powers that be above were not on board as much. I think two things happened. I think Magic Arena has been wildly more popular than they could have hoped. And, and they're still in open beta. Like So from that perspective... 
they realized that they needed to modify their plan to incorporate Magic Arena. Okay, that's fair. Uh, I think the other thing that happened was that after they made that announcement, or right before they made an announcement, they created that pro tour, pro play brain trust. If there was specific terms that they had for all of this, and I think while working with them, they realized that they needed to kind of modify the system on entirely and. With those two situations, they made this big change. I think one of those was the going from four to six to back to four was because they're all are adding multiple Magic Arena Magic Fest or Magic Championships or Mythic Championships, and because of that, they realized that that gives the opportunity for people to play at that level regardless, and so it made more sense to make that change. Uh, and then, and I think. I think the big regrettable thing is they should have just waited to make the six pro tour announcement, but they had to based on people's scheduling for next year and when they're like, they have to announce stuff. So somebody in the chat just said uh, t- uh, weird question mark. It's the most typical Watsy thing ever. Um, you're right. There has been a lack of organization, organizational structure with their announcements over the years. Like there's definitely, we're going to do it this way. And then a year later it's, we're not, we're going to do it this way now. That is a thing. I don't know if I, think that that's a thing that's just the problem with them. I mean, I think that's just, there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of money at stake. And so there's multiple people that have input on these decision-making and there is a schedule in mind. They mm-hmm. have to hit certain dates. Well, and stubbornness, stubbornness is not a sign of intelligence. Like it, it, the fact that they're willing to be flexible with what they're doing because they want to find the best possible system. And they've gone through a weird rapid growth where they had 20 years of like being fine and then like have recently just been modifying how their game plan works is good. I mean, I'd rather wizards be trying new stuff and trying to figure stuff out. Yes. It's a little bit messing with people's lives, but the, if they were just like, Nope, we're sticking our toe in the ground and we're not going to do anything different or change at all. Like not only does this stuff not happen, but like double face cards don't happen and they don't, they are refuse to try anything new. And then every other TCGs will overtake them and just be better. And so, yeah, you've got a, you've got a handful of things going on here. I mean, one of them obviously is that, there's a concern that Moto has crashed in terms of the secondary market and the value of the cards. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are really upset and they are, what's going to happen? I mean, Sa- Saffron's, I think Saffron Olive had the best response to this though, which was like, entire magic community complains that Moto's dying because it's too expensive and they want it to be cheaper. Why don't they make things cheaper? Wizards makes it cheaper. Uh, Moto's dying because it's cheaper now. I, my collection no longer has money. So it's like, People will always complain. I agree. There will always be, there will always, always, always be complaints, and that's just a thing. Because right now, Moto is the most inexpensive way to play modern, legacy, vintage, and cube. Yeah. Out there, totally. I wave my hand after cube because technically cube is free in real life. But but like, yeah, <laughs> you, so someone I mean, had to pay to buy that black lotus. So that's interesting. There's there's like there's a couple different pathways that you can go when you think about the future of magic. Right. Mm-hmm. One of them is that. Counterfeits are one of the most uh, concerning parts of the game. Sure. And digital magic completely gets rid of them. So that's... You know, you know like, our counterfeit episode where we talked about them? That was the episode that we've received the most aggressively anti-us and our opinions comments. Like, in messages yeah. because of that episode. Which what is fascinating. Our, what were our opinions that were so bad? That, we that counterfeits are bad. Oh, people think that counterfeits... That's right. That's right. People are... Yeah. There are people out there that aggressively think that counterfeits are a, pot, a net positive for people that are playing Magic. And yeah. they are wrong. Yeah. And, well, but, the game just uh, dies. But so, <laughs> that's, so that's one thing is that, you know, digital obviously is better for that. Yep. Um, there is no, like, plan in the future anytime soon for Modern to exist on Arena. If Modern existed on Arena, we're in a whole different space because then I think you start to really lose 
a lot of the value of the paper cards. I think that's I think that uh, significantly I, hurts it. I disagree. Really? I, I think I think magic strength will always be paper card tournaments, people playing with each other in stores. If like I think people one of the reasons they play magic is for the community around it and going totally digital kills it. I also think Modern will never exist on Arena. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's never happening. They're, like, they built Just Arena in a way. There are mechanics that are in Modern that don't work. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be a lot of the cards in Modern that are powerful that get reprinted eventually into Standard or into weird sets that make it work because there are mechanics that do. But, like, for instance, I don't know if Miracles ever works in, Mod- in Arena. I don't know if they have even made the system allowable for a mechanic like Miracles to function. Like, and like the- What would be so hard about it? You would, you would, when you draw your it was card, hard for when they did it on Moto. Like there's just parts of the mechanics that they've built in the game. It would when it happens, it just your opponent wouldn't see that you would get a trigger where it would like get all bright and like it's a light up thing, and you'd see the card for a second, and you would have ten seconds or something before Out, like other things like wishes, like are hard. And there's a wish right now on it, right? So wishes are fine. But I, I think there's just there's what stuff they basically said that there's mechanics from Magic's past yeah. that don't work very well in Arena. And no, I, I, mean, I can't tell you what those are, but they 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 made that same. The other thing is going back in time is hard. What I think is going to happen is eventually they'll just create Magic Origins. I'm using that as a starting point because it's only two sets behind where they're at currently. Yeah, I don't know if that's the set they would pick, but they would pick a set that is. And maybe it's just where Kaladesh or where wherever we're yeah, at yeah. now. Maybe it's just literally Ixalan block is the beginning of new modern. Well, and like in like Hearthstone's been around for how long now? Five, four, five years maybe? Yeah. Four years? And they have Wild. You can play Wild in Hearthstone. It's right. any card. It's not that long, but like it is a totally different format well, than just playing. When modern was created, it wasn't that long. And like it was a, what? Eight years. 15 years of sets? No. Eight years of sets? Eight years. 2011, I think. Yeah. So like that's not even that many years. So I think they could do that pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think they'd probably do it very quickly. I think they would like. I think the next rotation, they probably announce a like a modern esque type format. Yeah. In in in, in it, and, and, and maybe what it is is it's just Singleton Eternal. Like people so, love Singleton yeah. on on Arena. It makes it so you don't have like you can even add Shadows of Rainestrad because we know that Shadows of Rainestrad and onward is in the game. Like the digital files are within the code for yeah. Arena. So they could just make it like, all these sets are available, you only need one of every card, have fun. And I mean, yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see how they develop it over the years. I mean, I think what you're saying is true, which is that the reaction has been very strong, which is why you get that commercial, but everyone's going to know your name. You saw that, right? Yeah, yeah. If you, you know, everyone's going to know your name. very weird. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, I think what it is, is why that... Sir Mix-a-Lot in it? <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot in the commercial? That's the guy. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's because of Seattle, probably. That's why, because he's a famous Seattle. Oh, okay. And I'm from Seattle, so it was just like I don't know. Everything about it was weird. <laughs> I, I think probably, you know, what we're experiencing a little bit is that while the esports boom has been happening, and we've all been clamoring for Magic to get on board, there's also been a sense that we've had that we have this one thing that's different than all those other games, which is that we have this paper card game where you can go and there's eight people in a store and you can draft and like there's this history to it. It kind of felt like a very different and very unique thing and you would call magic an esport but like we all kind of knew it wasn't that yet mm-hmm. arena makes you feel like they are entering that world and it's well this announcement more than that like this announcement is them saying we are now an esport and we already kind of were yeah because like there are features of magic that were very esporty regardless because it was the closest thing to digital tournament play or, or tournament play that wasn't a actual sport yeah. that was successful um and I don't think esports exist the way they do without Magic actually having happened and doing that type of tournament play beforehand. Um, but 
now they're just like, no, we're an eSport. We have an e-product and we'll have paper one and that's going to make our war unique, like that we have physical in-person gameplay. And it'll so I probably think be really successful. My, my point is that I think we're experiencing a little bit of the confusion of like, this is a company that's now trying to market themselves in a different way to, to kids that, that view eSports in a different way than Magic players view Magic. And so that commercial, I think, is them sort of trying to be like, we need to make this like cool and hip yeah, and exciting. Sort of like, eh. I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying they did it totally right. I'm just saying that sure. that commercial, all of it, it's just, it's that. Well, no, I mean, what that commercial is that that, that Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast hired a actual marketing company that's doing it for them. I also think, I mean, so let's re, let's react a little bit to the most important, which is how the announcement got made for Magic Fest early. I mean, yeah. the, the, they got leaked because a separate marketing company, like Hasbro, hired a marketing firm to launch this marketing campaign for and that's where this commercial came from let's respond quickly to some of the most important details in the announcement sure. okay i think the first one is the seventy-five thousand dollars contracts for 32 players great that's a big that's a big game for magic that 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 really shows that they're doubling down on we're paying you a livable salary mm-hmm. to play magic the gathering 32 of you not not five or ten sure but like that's enough people that's enough people that you have like a a whole interactive community online. If every one of those people is active on Twitter, 32 people is a lot of voices, Mm -hmm. you know? I guess my issue with the 32 people announcement or my worry, and this is the worry I've heard from other people because it doesn't affect me at all, (laughs) um, is that's a weird cap that makes it so it's really hard to actually become a professional magic player as a career. Because unless you're the best 32 players, and there is some luck with how well you do, like if you looked at the best 32 players of the last 20 years... And like, it's not that it's not as consistent unless you're taught, like maybe the top 10 is consistent, but like without the hall of fame lock-in, I don't know how consistent you can, uh, like, I don't know if you could count on being a professional magic player. Anymore. I, I don't know that, that the 32 shouldn't be the only 32 players, right? Like for instance, this is, this is like, if you get hired for coverage for wizards or versus SCG, they're both very viable coverage teams mm-hmm. who are covering high level magic. Sure. Right. I don't know what either one of them pays, but like they probably are paying reasonably close and they're both hiring credible people. Right. In theory, if they have 32 people with $75,000 contracts, you're going to start to see other companies recognizing the value of this. And it's going to start, I think they're trying to kickstart the idea of esports teams within magic, where they're going to get real salaries from bigger companies that want to double down on this. And them saying as the company that owns this, mm-hmm. we're going to make it possible for the best 32 players at its inception to have careers. You other guys can have that too. And I think that's a pretty big deal. That's, that's a, that's a bigger deal in the support of the pro community and magic's done in a very long time. So I have a question. If you, were a magic player that was good enough to possibly make the top 32. Would you take a $50,000 a year contract to forego the $75,000 you'd make from wizards if you hit that level? Sorry, would I take a $50,000 contract? So, so I'm TCG player and okay, I find eight it. pros that are all probably good enough or like have at different times shown me that they're good enough to make it into the top 32. They're not currently there or they are. And I tell them I will pay you $50,000 for five years. Oh, year. gotcha, gotcha. There, but there. if you hit the $75,000 mark, I get twenty. I get $25,000. Well, a couple things. I don't really know how it works as far as prize money goes. I'm assuming that you have well, to And your prize money gets distributed among the people playing yeah. with you on your team. Um, probably, would you like vote for a consistent paycheck over... I would take a one-year 50000 I might take a two-year... Well, then, then why would you take it? Because 75000 gets you that one year. Because Well, okay, so you're saying before they make their selections? Shh. Like, you're saying when they announce this, before they make their players... 
TCG comes out. It's one of these companies. Comes like out they, they, they go to they go to LSV. They go to sure. Josh Adelaide, and they go to Gary. You know, all the top whatever. Yeah, they find yeah, enough yeah. of them. They're like, we'll guarantee you get this for the next five years if you if you promise to distribute your winnings among your team and us, including the seventy five thousand dollars you get. I would not at any point in time as a working adult who has any. Any interest in being like a functioning member of society to buy a home at some point, to marry someone, anything. Sure. Take a five-year, $50,000 contract if it, <laughs> if it meant that I was basically capped. Like, because well, like you're not you're – not, I mean this isn't your day-to-day job. You're not – like you would have the ability to go work as you regularly do now. Like magic players don't make $50,000 a year on average playing magic. On average for sure. Uh, then maybe because 32 is not very many players. Mm-hmm. I don't think I do it for five, though. I think it's too aggressive. I think if you're saying, like, two to three years, maybe. I think if it's a two-year, $50,000 contract. Because sure. a lot of people's complaints right now is that they have no idea. They can't put – they don't know if they can feel comfortable putting in the effort for $75,000 a year if they can't guarantee for the next three years they have an opportunity to get that $75,000. I think where the part of this that is the most interesting is if you want to be successful in any industry, if you want to stand out, you want to rise to the top – you're doing more than just taking that handout, right? Sure. It's not a handout because you're working hard for it, but like if you really believe you deserve to be one of the top 32 players, then you're marketing yourself. You're trying to get sponsors. You're streaming. You're selling merch. You're, you know what I'm saying? You're doing more than just that $75,000. you are you have a deal worked out that if you win, you're still actually benefiting greatly. Like I don't think it's just like 75 and that's it. I think you can take your 50 as long as you're doing it the right way, mm-hmm. like if you are truly marketing yourself to be a pro in magic and that's going to be your career, then I think you can do it. If it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting though. But I, I, the bottom line is I think it's a good step for Wizards in the right direction. It sends the right message. Right. And I hope that it inspires the other companies that have the budgets to do it and them in the future to get to put more players. Yeah, I, I, my biggest complaint of this whole announcement is that there's actually like for how much information they gave us, they, they did not give us enough for a lot. Like for instance, if you're – in the running to make gold to this year, right now, do you go to the next GP? Because gold basically gone. Is that yeah. what's gone? Like, and, and, and what is it worth it to you to go to the next GP? Like, I, would you book a trap? Like, would you go to Florida if you're I like in the running for gold? Or like yesterday or five days ago, if before they made this announcement, if I was in the running for gold, actually, I would go to the next GP, regardless of where it was in the United States, probably. I think their idea is that if we're going to make an omelet, we're going to break a few eggs. I agree. And I think, like, no one's, all the pro community is like, I am worried, but this is in the long term going to be better. And, and it's kind of a little bit of the, what you were saying earlier, where we have a, we've been asking forever for Magic to treat professional Magic like an eSport, to yeah. actually take this seriously. And dude, five days ago, they said, okay, yeah, and it's just we have now we have to see how it unfolds. I mean, I think a little bit of like if they look at their pro community and they say if we lose twenty five percent of these players because we're doing things differently and they are holding on to this thing they've worked hard for, it's a real bummer and we feel bad about it. But the yeah. health of this game long term and the health of the pro community long term is going to be built on this, not that. Well, so and, and on the reverse end of it, Brian Kibler's back. Like pros that left Magic for Hearthstone because Arena is around are coming back out of the woodwork to Magic because Magic is a better game than Hearthstone. Yeah, it always has been, and yeah. it will always—well, maybe not always be—but for the time being, I see it being better. And Magic Arena versus Hearthstone versus um, Magic: The Gathering Online, and the 
the viability of making a career in being a personality around those games. Yeah. Hearthstone was just a much more viable option until just now. Yeah. And like while this whole thing is happening on this end, the streaming community is also getting a huge boon to it just by the fact that Magic Arena is good. Yeah. Like we're literally had a discussion before this we started recording on you know, other content that we could be making. Yeah. And, you know, we've always been like, well, we could stream, but Moto sucks. <laughs> and, you know, we've been a little resistant to maybe streaming Arena because our audience is modern focused. But, you know, in reality, you streaming Arena, just starting, would probably be really beneficial because, A, you can do weird, cool stuff on Arena. They have cool events. For instance, Brian Kibler is doing a big Monsters series for the next month where it's like, he or the next week, uh, where every card over four converted mana cost that's a creature, you draw a card. Just as like a, a rule that's in the game. And so that's a benefit, so it's encouraging oh. you to play big creatures. Hmm. That's like a cool format they've created for the next week. Um, or in two weeks. And so like stuff like that is stuff that you being wacky brew person yeah. could have a lot of fun with on arena that's on brand and even though it's not modern, is within the framework of stuff that would be cool for people our I, fans to watch. And we'd love to hear your guys' thoughts people listening and people watching on us doing live streaming or just arena content onto YouTube. And if that's something you'd be interested in, even though it's not modern. Yeah. I think that like with these pro contracts with like third party pro contracts are not coming from TCG player. I think the idea is that they would come from esports organizations like cloud nine or right. TSM or somebody like that would be, you know, putting more money into the magic pro infrastructure by fielding a team because they all have Hearthstone teams and then I have, like, you know, teams for other digital TCGs, but Magic has been untouched by that so far. Right. So if you guys couldn't quite hear that, just in case, on the, on the mics here, Michael is basically saying that um, the encouragement by Wizards putting this money on the contract should encourage these other esports organizations like Cloud9 or TSM to put money behind an organizational structure to have teams that are supported in the way that other esports have, um, which which is true. I mean, and, and I think that that's totally valid, and I hope that that is what happens. So, do we have do we have an exact breakdown on what you need to do to be in that thirty two players? Nope, they haven't given it to us. More details to follow, as usual. More details to follow. Yeah, um, so we don't know Jim Scott, who asks, is the top thirty two or the just the top thirty two mm-hmm. contracted player? We don't know what to be in that thirty two means, and my guess is it's a combination of. Win X events, types of events you get in probably, uh, have X amount of you did well this year uh, types of things, and then probably some other third category that's more indeterminate. Can we, um, before we run out of time here, yeah. what else on that list do you think is most relevant? I mean, I guess, I guess the next big thing to talk about is the fact that historically, I don't know the exact number, somebody probably knows this, the increase to a $10 million prize pool for 2019 has to be at least... At least a hundred percent, right? Like we have to have gone, we have to have gone from five million to ten or four million to ten because we weren't. I mean, we were getting four pro tours previously at two fifty, and then a bunch of grand prix. Mm-hmm. So, well, now each pro tour is five hundred thousand dollars. The Magic Fests through Arena are going to have some non-announced value in what you get awarded. I don't. So I don't know what the actual increase is, but I know that we. I know that it's more. I know. I'm, I'm guessing it's at least. Five million more, and we know that a lot of that money comes from travel rewards and hotels and a lot of these things that they're right. not paying. But at the same time, it looks better, and it is better to say if you play Magic in 2019 and you play it competitively, there's 10 million dollars on the line, right? I mean, even if we're just assuming, and we don't know this, but like if we're just assuming that the fact that they're doubling the money they're giving out in the Pro Tour at a Mythic Championship, as they're called, you used to win 50 grand. If it's doubled, you're going to win a hundred thousand dollars to win 
a mythic championship. A mm-hmm. hundred grand. That's a lot of money. Right. It's a huge amount of money. Right. In, in winning a pro tour in the past after taxes, you'd walk with about 37K. Right. Double that, you know? You're making a year's salary at a pretty decent job if you win a pro tour, a year. Like 70 grand after taxes is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a big deal and I think the 10 million number really resonates with me. I mean, I don't love the travel reward stuff because I think it does eliminate some of the some of the uh, romantic appeal that Magic used to have in that sense. But they already got rid of it for most of the Hall of Fame side of things. And so, like, it, who was really getting was people who won the local tournaments, like DTQs. I can imagine local game stores, if it's really a clamoring for that, offering, if you win my PTQ, I will include a $250 travel voucher to the Pro Tour. Like, well, I think 250 is not going to do much for you if you fly to, like, Dublin. I mean, but that's what sort of like. I mean, like a lot of times that way you were. I mean, maybe five hundred then, but like I would say based on number of players, right? That's where you do it. You scale. You, you make it scalable. Like you figure, okay, if this is a constructed PTQ, I don't think you can really make it scalable. I think it's it's like I'm going to give you a percent because you'll know when the PTQ is happening. What pro tour is it for? It's not like oh, you'll get a random pro tour available to you, right? Okay, so, so if like, it's like Mythic Championship that's in Sacramento, then it's like two fifty. And if it's like Mythic Championship that's in Dublin, then you're like, I'm going to have to make this reasonable. It's going to have to be constructed, not limited. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take 25 at the door. I'm going to make this much, and I'll have $500 or $800 that I can give out as the travel. Because the store's not actually making money through their tournament fees. They're making it through singles sold at that tournament. So, Well, I mean, they do make money on those constructed tournaments. The constructed ones. The amount of money they make from entry fees compared to... Well, definitely they make more on singles, but I'm saying think about it. They run a tournament at their store on a day, and 35 people show up. And those 35 people spend $25 to enter the tournament and it's a constructed tournament they bring their own cards it costs the store literally not a dollar to That's run that not tournament true. what does it cost what, what does it cost you have the store like to multiple run? employees pay a judge pay a judge the staff is going to be there late because magic tournaments like PTQs you're running like you know six rounds because top eight come over, to come over to microphones so that people can hear you because this is this a is good enough of an explanation that because I know this but not everyone does <laughs> alright yeah I used to run tournaments at a store so like for a PPTQ you're you're paying like more staff to be there because you need somebody managing the tournament as well as managing the register. And then if you do other business, like you sell other board games or comic books or whatever your store is doing, you need somebody handling that as well. So so chances are you're paying a person to be there. You also need to be paying at least one judge in addition to you know the store staff. Uh, and you are paying and them the maybe a store credit or a box or something. But it's you know it's it's a relevant amount of. Uh, money you have to pay the judge and then uh, you also are probably there a long time so you're like paying people more than they would be getting just to be there for a normal day of business because you're open late because it's like six rounds plus cuts top eight or something so uh, yeah it's it is expensive and then prize and you're prize usually money in general and prize yeah you have to be giving a generous prize especially in an area like LA where there's like tons of stores you can drive to like people are not every single PPTQ they're going to the ones that are like appealing to them so you have to be giving a good prize so yeah, you're you're making money off of like publicity, like people having a good experience at your store and maybe coming back later and singles, but you're you're not making that much money off the actual entry fee. Solid explanation. Thank you, Michael. I'm wrong. Uh, it does cost money to run a constructed tournament. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess and then like prize but but they make a ton of money on a constructed tournament more than the draft from selling, from, singles. from selling singles. And that's the point. And the brutal part about that is like I bought my ninth Lightning Helix at this tournament because I only had two and I needed a third. Like, right. that's like the why they make money at these things is because you show up and like, you just don't have what you need and if you're going to play, you just have to buy it. Well, so, it, something that I think, I don't know if everyone knows this either is, uh, there are a few stores that make a ton of money at GPs, 
but most stores go to GPs to buy cards. Yeah. They because they need card stock for their store at home, and that's where they're making most of their money. And so they go to GPs more to actually build stock and do a buying trip where they can get a lot of stuff from a lot of people that aren't in their community normally. And then when they go home, they now have that stock available to sell to players. Which is like really why the SCG circuit is able to live. It's because they 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 have they have hit a critical mass of players that come to these things with an organizational structure that is strong enough. Right. They're the only game in town there. So every card bought is just going on their website. Right. Every card sold. So that's why no, SCG... I mean, one of the reasons I think the SCG tournament circuit happened, they're like, oh, we're running these tournaments. We need more cards. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's the best way to get them. Yeah. So I think those are the two biggest. I mean, I think the player contracts and the $10 million prize pool, I think those are both really big deals. I mean, Alex, are there any other details on that list that you think stand out beyond the, the 32 players and the $10 million that are the biggest? Like... Um, I, it's mostly just like the stuff like we don't know what 32 players how they selected like I wish they had more information on the way they're doing stuff and I think some of it they don't know I think some of it they're figuring out for sure and they were getting feedback with these announcements to see where people are at on where things are happening I think they like were like well, we don't know what players will want more. Do they want the 32 players to be Hall of, Fame, Hall of Fame players or do they want them to be the best players? Well, why don't we announce that they will exist and then get ideas from the community during that process? And I think the, the, the last one is that there's some stuff that they like know what they're doing, but for legal reasons, they haven't perfectly ironed out what it is exactly and they don't want to make the announcement until they do because there will be legal promises behind it since so much money is involved. Interesting. Like if they were announced today uh, during this tournament, like... Oh, every winner of a GP makes a, gets gets invited to a whatever, and then yeah, right. six and they months they find out they're like, oh, that doesn't work for this reason because Magic Arena is involved now, and how does that work? Then they have to change it. That's a problem. yeah. Um, last question for you before we go: mm-hmm. What do you think the big push on Arena means for the future of Moto? I think Moto is fine. I think it becomes much more of a, a, a niche play area, but it allows like right now the cheapest way to play modern is on Moto. Yeah, cheapest way to play it. It's not that like, expensive. Legacy and Vintage is like insanely cheap on Moto. You can buy, I think, every card on Moto for less than ten grand. Is something like uh, yeah. that I saw. And so like, that's good because, and I think that'll keep Moto alive. I think the fact that you just always play these cool older formats. For instance, I will never draft Innistrad again unless I play it on Moto. Yeah, and Innistrad is the best gaming experience I probably like top ten gaming experiences of my life. So it's like, also possible that Arena and like the, the visibility to Magic that Arena brings will actually get more players on Moto because mm-hmm. they'll be curious. They're used to playing digital Magic. They can't play Modern. They want to try it out. Now they basically understand the Magic's mechanics, so they can just like pour over pretty easily. Right. It's totally possible that that's actually what happens, and then from there they're like, well, this this experience on this like kind of unsupported digital format is not as fun. I'm going to get into physical modern because it's like way sweeter. Yeah, and, and I think eventually, like five years, ten years from now, Moto could die. Like that could happen. Yeah. I, I think that only really happens once there is a, some amount of an eternal scene on Arena that is comparable. And even then, I think we have, we have a long time until that happens. And in the meantime, have fun playing vintage. Yeah. Cause it's sweet. <laughs> All right, guys, I think that's going to wrap us up for the day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching as always. Be sure to check out our Twitter at the MM cast. We Absolutely. have a Patreon. It's like a big deal that we ask for your support. Because... All the little things like the new microphones and us doing these live streaming content and how we're going to figure out how to actually accomplish all of this. The only reason we're able to do it is the small amount of money we make on Patreon. And the more we get, the quicker we're able to accomplish these. Goals. We like, yeah, we like move through it and 
you know, it's a little bit of money every month and we kind of save it up and then we'll spend it on something like new mics or something to make the show a little better. And the support from you guys is how we can keep making the show better. So please help us. Please help us continue to make the show a strong product. We want to keep making it better for you guys and, and try to improve the audio and all the things. Um, subscribe, like, comment, YouTube. It's the other biggest deal for us right now is growing this, this online, um, you know, this, this video community. Mm-hmm. And um, otherwise, I think, I think we're going to be... Yeah. Be done. You already do. We already shout out Jimmy and Josh. Did that happen? Did we talk? Oh about no, Command Jimmy Zone? and Josh. Command Zone. Jo- Jimmy's back, right? Is he back on the Command Zone? Or is he just back I'm in not town. Not really sure, but he's back in town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So All we'll I ever see from that happens. guy are like shirtless flexing pictures and being famous now. He's ripped. There's yeah. a good, he had a fake beard for some reason. Yeah, he showed a picture of it. It was cool. Uh, yeah, I think like collect you know, all the stuff on Collective Company is great. Us, but then game nights. Command Zone, yeah. and uh, the new show that I always forget, Extra Turns, extra turns yeah. um, which uh, Josh showed a funny video because they made Extra Turns in the format of Extra Turns specifically to make it kind of easier to edit and pump out content, but he, Josh is so OCD and good at, like, like needs everything to be perfect and hardworking that, like, the, the thread is just, just as complicated. <laughs> yeah. Did not bite off more than they could chew. No. Uh, and, yeah, those guys are great. Love them. Love them. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week with, I think, a top 10 episode. So maybe see you guys soon. Bye. Love you. Miss you. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>